bring greetings from Corbin University. I had the opportunity to preach in chapel on Friday morning, and the main reason I wanted to share that with you today is that uh, Steve and Nicole Nim's daughter, Morgan, uh, took the liberty of uh, approaching the powers that, that be and, and asked if she could put together a special worship team for uh, this particular chapel that I would preach at. And she was given the green light, and so she put a team together comprised of only Christ Fellowship students. And uh, I don't know if it was supposed to be a surprise or not. It doesn't really matter. But it was, uh, and I don't even know, Stephen Nicole, if it should be considered a gift, but I considered it a gift. It was, I, I was so proud as their pastor to see them in front of, I don't know how many were there, 350, 400 students. There's a lot of students leading worship uh, to the glory of God. And, and if I'm proud of them, I can't imagine how proud the parents must be of, of these students um, uh, and their growth in the Lord and, and all the good things that he's doing in their lives. Well, this morning, I want to begin by reading a, a very important statement that is not tweet-worthy. A very important statement that's not tweet-worthy. That is to say, it's longer than a tweet should be, but even though it doesn't qualify as a tweet, it is nonetheless a very important statement. It goes like this. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, Ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. Do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. Now, these are words that I certainly hope are familiar to most of you this morning. Indeed, these are words that should be familiar to almost every American citizen. These are the words commonly referred to as the, the preamble of the United States Constitution. Now, a preamble is defined as a preliminary set of words. It's a preparatory statement. It's an introduction, if you will. And I think that you'll agree that this preamble that I just read contains some very, very important information that we as American citizens dare not pass over. The preamble that I just read contains a set of sweeping realities that affect my life and your life. It affects the way we do business in America. We call it life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These words have a profound effect on how we enjoy our freedom, how we live our lives, and how we worship even in this place today. To jettison, to ignore the preamble to the United States Constitution would be a terrible mistake. Wouldn't you agree? Yet how often as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ... Do we bypass the preambles of some of the New Testament books? As we begin a new series this morning on the book of Ephesians, and I must say I've been looking forward to this for quite some time, it would be, it would be very easy for us, let me take that back, it would be very easy for me to skip over verses 1 and 2 and get to the meat, if you will, of the book of Ephesians. But as we shall soon discover, 
that too would be a horrible, horrible mistake. And so I want to invite you, if you have not already done so, to turn to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And while we will this morning limit our our time together to study verses 1 and 2, namely the preamble, I want to begin today by reading Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 13, or rather through 14, to give you really an overview of the treasure chest that we will explore over the next several weeks. And I I should say while you're turning there that as we open the book of Ephesians, we're going to go slow. We're going to go verse by verse, and we're going to ask what God would have us learn and discover in this great book. And so would you stand with me out of respect to the authority of God's word? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who were in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory in him you also when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised holy spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. May God bless the reading of his word. We join me in prayer. Father, we want to thank you for, for this time to gather corporately as the body of Christ, to open the word of God, to, to learn, to discover, to be instructed, to receive blessing, to be challenged, to be convicted, to be drawn into your very presence. And as we begin this journey, what will prove to be a a very long journey, if if that be your will, studying this book, I ask that you would do marvelous things in many hearts as as we look over the, the sea of faces in this congregation. God, I pray that you would be drawing people to yourself, that there are people that are perhaps here who are not yet Christians, that even today that you would draw forth your elect And for those who are longtime followers of the Lord Jesus, or even those who are just getting started in the Christian race, that this book would be a tremendous encouragement to them, that they would be equipped, that they would be edified, 
that you would once again do mighty things in many hearts scattered across uh, the sea of faces in this room. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, that you would illuminate the pages before us so that we would see wonderful things in the law of God. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me begin by saying something that won't come as a surprise to really any of you. At least I hope it doesn't come as a surprise. And that is that the book of Ephesians is an absolutely powerful book. One writer says this. He says, pound for pound, Ephesians may be the the most influential document in history. It has been called the, the crown and the climax of Paul's theology, the sublimest communication ever made to men. And the consummate and most comprehensive statement, which even the New Testament contains the meaning of the Christian religion. It is certainly the final statement of Pauline theology. As we look at this this absolutely mind-blowing book, this heartwarming book, I want to begin by way of introduction and really uh, seek to prepare your hearts to, to lay the groundwork for this study and ask, what is it that we stand to gain by studying this book. Well, there are several things that come to mind. We will gain a, a greater understanding of God's redemptive purposes for the nations. When we study the book of Ephesians, we will gain a greater understanding of God's love for us. We will gain a greater understanding of the roles of the Trinity in salvation, especially in verses 3 to 14. We will gain a greater understanding of the depth of our sin as we look in Ephesians chapter 2. We will gain a greater understanding of the depth and the beauty of grace. We will begin to have a greater understanding of our position in Christ, a subject that I am convinced very few Christ followers are aware of and, and grasp who they are in Christ. We will gain a greater understanding of the mystery of the gospel And the role of the church. You see, we will see that the church is not optional in God's mind. Rather, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is at the very center of God's redemptive purposes. Moreover, we will have a greater understanding of what it means to walk with God. What does it mean to walk with God? Ephesians will help unpack that for us. And then we will have a greater understanding of the Christian life in general. We will ask questions like, why worship? What should we pray for? How can we imitate God? What is God's plan for marriage? What is God's plan for parenting? You can see in a very quick way, the the book of Ephesians has some very practical lessons for each of us. And then as we move into chapter 6, we will ask the question, how do we fight? How do we fight in the strength that God supplies. Now, those are questions by by way of introduction. So before we dive into this incredible book, we need to look very carefully at the preamble. That introductory set of words that precedes the the, the bone and the marrow of the book that begins in verse 3. The title of the message this morning is The Power of a Preamble. 
And as I've already indicated, verses 1 and 2 contain that preamble, Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. And what we will find in, in two short verses that I think if we all admitted when it comes to daily devotions, if we spent time in the book of Ephesians, most of us would probably kind of skip over verses 1 and 2 and go to verse 3. But I want to remind you that as we study the word of God, that we believe the word of God is authoritative. We believe the word of God is inerrant. That is to say, every word is is error-free in the original languages. God does not speak with forked tongue, does he? Our God does not lie. And so the word is authoritative. It's inerrant. It's infallible. Theologians refer to the word of God as being a book filled with perpiscuity. That's a, a fancy word to say it is clear. I like to say that perpiscuity means this. Every junior hire that is a follower of Jesus Christ, can understand God's word. Did you know that? Now, does that mean they're going to understand the finer points of the atonement? Does that mean they're going to be able to figure out uh, the distinction between pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, or pan-trib? It'll all pan out in the end. That's not what we're referring to. But we say a junior hire, a child who is a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, can turn to the pages of Scripture and begin to understand the word of God, because God has spoken clearly to his people. This morning, by way of introduction, I want you to notice three headings. We're going to look first at the author. We're going to spend some time looking at the author of the book, and then we're going to move on to the recipients and ask, who is it that Paul is writing to? And then finally, we will ask, what is the motivation for writing this letter? And so look first with me at the heading number one, the author. And of course, I think most of us know off the top of our heads that the author of this little book is Paul. I want you to notice four things with me about Paul. Number one, I want to just walk through some real quick background information. And this background information will come more and more as we get into the book. But realize that Paul writes his letter to the Ephesian believers from the confines of a Roman jail. And the date is disputed, but from the the best sources that I could determine, AD 62 is the approximate time that he wrote. And so he writes a long time ago to the believers in the city of Ephesus. Number two, notice in verse one that Paul refers to himself as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul refers to himself as an apostle. Now, we need to focus in on this word. And we need to ask exactly what does it mean when he says he's an apostle? Well, it comes from the Greek word apostolos. It means a special messenger of Jesus Christ. It comes from the noun apostello, which means to send. Now, what is it that I say at the end of every sermon? You were sent. Now, do you think that when I say that you were sent, you were all apostles? Please don't answer yet. And we're going to see in a moment why that, that when I say you are sent, that does not mean you are apostles. You may fulfill one of the responsibilities of an apostle, but I think it's very clear in the pages of the New Testament that apostles no longer exist. And we'll see why that is in a moment. An apostle is a sent one. An apostle is an ambassador and never greater than the one who sends him. In this case, the Lord Jesus Christ. The term also designates the authority which those who are called the office possesses. 
The word in Romans chapter 10 means this, apostello. It means to send away for a stated goal or purpose. There's a very specific aim for an apostle. Number three, the biblical criteria for apostleship. And this is very, very important as we study this together. There is some very specific criteria that we must establish to determine who is or who isn't an apostle. And the reason this is so important for us to understand today is that we have people running around the world right now, probably in our own county, who say, I'm an apostle. Listen to me. I'm an apostle. And we need to ask, what is the criteria that the New New Testament establishes? Number one, an apostle is a physical eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. Is everyone with me? An apostle is a physical eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. Now, I think if you're thinking clearly, you would say, wow, pastor, do we need to look at any of the other criteria in order to determine if any of us are numbered among the apostles? I can say, I'll start. I have never seen the resurrected Christ. So I am automatically disqualified from naming myself as an apostle. And my suspicion is the rest of you would say the same. Hold your finger in Ephesians chapter 1 and look over briefly at Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 39, we get a glimpse of how important this is. Acts chapter 10, verse 39. And I'm, I'm dreading the day 20 or 30 years from now when the pastor says, turn with me to Acts chapter 10 and there's not one page being turned because everyone has a tablet. And that's not a judgment call against tablets, but I love, I love the sound of the pages turning. Acts chapter 10 verse 39. We are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death, that is Jesus, by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So the first criteria you see is that an apostle is a physical eyewitness to the resurrected Christ. Secondly, The second criteria to serve as an apostle is that you are personally appointed by Christ. That is to say, you need to see Jesus post-resurrection, and he needs to come to you and personally appoint you and personally commission you. If you would look over briefly with me at the book of Mark, Mark chapter 3. In Mark chapter 3, we see this uh, among many other passages. Mark 3.14 the calling of the 12 apostles, and he appointed 12 whom he also named sent ones or apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out the demons. Third, you see, if you would turn to one other passage with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. The third criteria for serving as an apostle is that he had to be able to authenticate his apostolic status with miraculous signs. 
And that's exactly what we read in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12. And this is probably the most explicit of all the passages. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience. Notice, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Now, this is something you can all remember. You can commit it to memory. For someone to qualify as an apostle, they need to see Jesus post-resurrection. Jesus needs to appoint them personally, and they need to be doing these signs and wonders. John MacArthur adds, The New Testament apostles were recognized as revelatory agents of God. And as such, they possessed an unsurpassed level of authority in church history, an authority they derived from Christ himself. To be an apostle of the Lord Jesus was a specific calling and a profound privilege, something far different from merely being a messenger sent from a local congregation. Apostleship was a unique office that encompassed a non-transferable commission from Christ to proclaim revelatory doctrine while laying the foundation of the church. More on that in Ephesians chapter 2. MacArthur concludes, Hence the writings of the New Testament constitute the only true apostolic authority in the church today. That is to say... The age of the apostles has ceased. And there's some important implications that will draw out from that reality as we continue through the book of Ephesians. Our task then is to listen carefully, ever so carefully, to Paul's words. Why? Because he is an apostle. He is one who who fits the criteria And as such, he writes the word of God under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it is our responsibility now to listen and obey. Parents, have you ever said that to your children? It's time for you to listen and obey. That's exactly what we as the people of God do, is it not? We read the sacred text and we listen, we respond, and we obey. There's a fourth thing I want you to see. In verse 1, and that is that an apostle or Paul here is commissioned by the will of God. In verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. If you have a pen, I'd encourage you to mark that word will. The word will comes from a Greek word that means desire or purpose. And when it denotes God's will, it, it signifies his gracious disposition towards something. Used to designate what God himself does of his own good pleasure. Galatians chapter 1 verse 15 says that God appointed Paul to be an apostle when? Before he was born. So in the womb, Jeremiah is appointed to be a prophet to the nations. In the womb, Paul is ordained by God, is commissioned by the will of God to be an apostle. The will of God here means the counsels or eternal purposes of God. And so Paul the apostle is divinely commissioned by God, by the will of God. Such a special commission should cause the Ephesian believers to eagerly receive what God has written to them in this letter in the first century. And where it gets practical for you and I is, 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 is here. Even though the letter 
as we will discover, is specifically written to these Christ followers in the Ephesus church. This letter is also written to every subsequent Christ follower. If you were here today and you were a Christian, this letter is penned directly to you. Therefore, we, along with the Ephesians, should eagerly await to receive a blessing from God as his message begins to penetrate our hearts. This fresh perspective should awaken our hearts. It should rejuvenate our minds. It should motivate us to listen ever so carefully to God's words. I want to ask you some very important questions. Soul-searching questions that you need to wrestle with before we move on to the second heading. I want to ask this morning, are, are you ready to receive the word? Ask yourself, say, self, am I ready to receive the word? Is, is your mind sharp? I, I was joking with someone a few days ago that I had asked a question like this at one point. Are you, are you red hot and rolling? Is your mind sharp? Are you ready to go for the things of the Lord? And I looked down and... Whew, right? So, everyone with me? Is your mind sharp? Are you ready to roll? Are you excited? Are you prepared to receive a blessing? Are you prepared to obey when God challenges you from your word? Are you in, and Kirk, I, I thought it, for some reason you popped in my mind today. It, it could have been Luke, you know, it could have been Dane, it could have, it could have been Kyle, but for whatever reason you popped in my mind. Ready position, right? Because I, I see you do this on the field, right? I, 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 I was tempted to have everyone stand up and get in the ready position. I won't have you do that. But are you in the ready position? The ready position means your mind is engaged, your heart is soft, your heart is warm to the things of God. Even as we read through verses 3 to 14, are there words in verses 3 to 14 that are hot button words for you? Where you're thinking to yourself, don't go there. Don't, don't, don't even deal with that word. Don't deal with adoption. Don't deal with predestination. Don't deal with election. We're a Baptist church. You're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. Listen, we're going, to, we're going to wax eloquent on the Holy Spirit. Can we do that together? And so ask, are there words in verses 3 to 14 that, that raise your dander, that gets you wondering, what's happening here? Ask yourself once again, are you in the ready position? And here's a real practical question. And for those of you who I just offended by referring to tablets or iPads, is your tablet turned on? Is your phone on? The Puritans could never say that, could they? Right? Is your tablet on? Is your phone on? Is your Kindle on? Is your iPad on? Is your Bible open? I would hope that there are no closed Bibles right now. Because when we come to the Word of God, our hearts and our minds need to be ready to roll, ready to receive the truth of God. Is your pen ready? Mom, do you have a pen? <laughs> Honey, do you have a pen? Bible open, pen ready. Is your paper ready to be written on? Do you have an attitude that is filled with anticipation? Or are you more pumped up about the game at one o'clock? See, this is the time when the people of God gather to read God's word, to study God's word, to receive a blessing from God's word. And I believe that's how the Ephesian believers received this letter. Can you imagine when the letter came, when the email arrived, 
And they double-clicked, and they began to read, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Gather around. You're going to have to hear this. This is incredible. And that's what we need to do as well. Well, that's the author. Number two, heading number two. Notice the recipients. The recipients. Also in verse one, Paul says, To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Notice several things. First of all, this letter is written to Christ followers, as I've already indicated. And I want you to notice in verse 1 that Paul addresses the letter specifically to the saints. The hagios. It literally means the holy ones. Paul addresses his letter, simply put, to the people of God. This letter is not written to unbelievers. This letter is written to professing followers of Jesus Christ. It refers to someone, that is the word saint, refers to someone who has been made holy and pure. Someone who is dedicated to God. Charles Hodge, the great Princeton theologian, says the Israelites were called saints. Why? Because they were separate from other nations and consecrated to God. In the New Testament, the word saint is applied to believers, not merely as externally consecrated, but as reconciled to God and inwardly purified. You know, that's who you are today. You are reconciled to God. You are inwardly purified. And coming off the Reformation Day celebration, we should all know now that if you are in Christ, you are justified. And how are you justified? You're justified by faith alone. By faith alone. Peter the Apostle also refers to Christ's followers as saints. He says it in verse uh, 15 of 1 Peter 1. He says, but he who has called you is holy. That is God. And so you also are to be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. In fact, this term saints, the Greek word hagios, is scattered throughout the pages of the New Testament. Let me give you a few examples. In Acts 9. Peter went there and was among them all, and he came down to the saints who lived in Lydda. In Romans chapter 1, to, the, to those in Rome who are loved by God, who are called, guess what, saints. In 1 Corinthians 1, 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Colossians 1, 12 We learn about giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Revelation 14, 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. We'll get there a long time from now. But sexual immorality... And all impurity or covetousness, but not, but, but, but it must not even be named among you as is proper among saints, the holy ones, the people of God. Now, it would be important if you would look down at the word saints in verse 1 to mention at this point that there are only two kinds of people in the world. And this is where some people would come to the table and say, you're, you're overgeneralizing. We're just going to biblicize this. There's only two kinds of people in the world. There are children of the devil, and there are children of God, 
otherwise known as saints. I want to have you hold your finger again in Ephesians 1 and go back to 1 John. 1 John chapter 3. And in 1 John chapter 3, in verse 10, we see the Apostle John distinguishing now between two kinds of people. 1 John 3.10. By this it is evident who are the children of God, that is, the saints, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And so there in, in one sentence, we can see there are only two kinds of people in the world. There are children of the devil and there are children of God. Referring to the children of the devil, the Bible says that unbelievers have gone astray, that every unbeliever is separated from God without hope and without God in the world. I keep my eye on, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to call it a church because it's not a church. It's a, it's a group of people who gather as a church in the city of Seattle. And from time to time, once or twice a month, I go and I listen to one of the, I'm going to call it a lecture from this church because it's not a sermon either. And as I listen to this uh, church who is considered an all-inclusive church, that is to say, lesbians and gays and transsexuals can be members, be baptized, be on the pastoral team, serve as elders and deacons. You with me? I want to, I want to know what's going on in the world. I want to know what's going on at this organization. And this organization, a speaker uh, spoke from the platform a few weeks ago, and he said, that they are not a church, they are not a group of individuals who focuses on the fear of God. We're not going to do that anymore. Because we're all united in God. That's their presupposition. You see, the presupposition is right from the, it's wrong from the get-go. You see, when, when I was born, when you were born, you were born in a condition where you were separated from God. You were lost and without hope and without God. Every unbeliever is without God in the world. Such a person is under the almighty wrath of God. Would you look with me at Romans chapter 3? And the Apostle Paul really articulates this for us in a vivid and a sobering way. He helps us to understand what is the condition of a child of the devil. Romans chapter 3, beginning of verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are the ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Simply put, the the child of the devil 
is separated from God, lost without hope, without God in this world. Then there is the children of God, the the saint, as Paul refers to this individual in verse 1. John chapter 1, verse 12, a verse that many of you know. But to those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Can you believe it? Romans chapter 8, verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Paul says in Philippians 2 that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and a twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. You see, there are only two kinds of people in the world, the children of the devil and the children of God. And so I need to ask a a question that deserves a, a thoughtful and a careful answer. Which one are you? Are you a child of the devil or are you a child of God? Know this, there is no middle round. There, there is no buffer zone between a child of God and a child of the devil. You're either a child of God or you're a child of the devil. You can't straddle the fence. You can't hedge your bets with this question. The way you answer this question has absolutely massive implications, of course. Every child of the devil gets exactly what he or she deserves. That is judgment, wrath from God, eternity in hell. And every child of God gets what Jesus earned for them. That is the very righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, the free gift of salvation. And so Paul makes it very clear who his letter is intended for. It is not for the children of the devil. It is for the children of God, the saints. He goes on, though, and from Christ followers, he moves on to say that these are faithful in Christ Jesus. Look again at verse 1. To the saints who are in Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul describes the saints with this one-word description, and I I love this. Don't don't let it slip past you. This one-word description is faithful. That's how he describes these Christ followers in Ephesus. The word faithful simply means this. It means persevering faith. It means one who is worthy of faith. It means a, a person who is exercising faith. But here's my favorite. It's equivalent to believing. And so if you're trying to figure out where do you stand? Are you a child of God or a child of the devil? Just ask, do I believe? Do I believe? Do I believe that Jesus is the God man? That he came And lived a perfect life, a life that I could never live on my own. And did he did he die on the cross and did God raise him from the grave on the third day? And now he's seated at the right hand of the father. Do I believe that if you believe that it will have a massive, massive implications in your life? It it changes the way you live. It changes the way you live. John Calvin said, no man is a believer who is not also a saint. And on the other hand, no man is a saint who is not a believer. You hear what Calvin's saying? If you believe, that means you're a saint. If you're a saint, that means you're a believer. And then also Paul says this, and don't skip by this in verse 1. He says that the faithful are said to be, you see what he says there? In Christ. I was about 19 years old 
And I can't remember where I was in the New Testament. I believe it was in the book of Romans. But all, all of a sudden I started to see in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Have you had that happen to you? And I started to ask, there must be some significance about this phrase in Christ. And certainly there is much could be said about this phrase. But for now, please understand that 100 percent of the blessings that you and I presently enjoy and all of the blessings to come in the future are wrapped up in these two words. In Christ. Everything you have as a Christian, everything you will have as a Christian, when you receive a glorified body, when, when sin is finally defeated, everything is wrapped up in this little phrase, in Christ. I want to give you just a, just a morsel, just a, an hors d'oeuvre, just a taste of, of what we'll learn about this phrase. Things to come. Look at verse 3, and this is where we'll turn next week. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, are you with me? In Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's where we're going next week. Is my head about ready to explode? I mean, this is amazing, amazing stuff. There's something else I want you to see in verse 1. I want you to see that the church here that Paul writes to is located in the city of Ephesus, of course, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. I want to have you look at this map, and I don't know how how clear it will be for you, but Ephesus is a city on the west coast of Asia Minor. It's located in the southwestern corner of present-day Turkey. It was the capital, Ephesus was the capital of the Roman province of Asia Minor by Augustus, uh, 27 B.C. to A.D. 14. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire with a population of about 250,000. Here's the way I can figure this out. That's like three Bellinghams, right? That's how big, if you can imagine in your mind, how big Ephesus was. It was a major commercial port and a center of industry. This is where Amazon went. This is where Apple went. Work with me. This is where Faith Life is going to, right, Todd? Just work with me here. This is like the, the industrial city, a port city, fishing, industry, technology, if you will. That's what kind of city it was. It was a very popular tourist destination. Those are the positive things about the city. But Ephesus was also a city that was filled to the brim with paganism and idol worship. Worship of uh, the idol Artemis or Diana, a goddess of fertility, magic, and astrology. That was dominant in the city of Ephesus. Animal bones have actually been discovered around a shrine of this deity, the deity of Diana which reveals that sacrifices were likely. And also inscriptions have been excavated to reveal this deity, this pagan god, Diana, as a savior to the people in Ephesus. Other deities were worshipped in Ephesus and may have included at least 50 different pagan gods. So now think like this. Think Bellingham. Think Seattle. Think Portland, where you have this this, this hodgepodge, this, this pot, this stew of religious pluralism. 
where it's, it's pick your religion for the day. And there's at least 50 deities, pagan gods that were worshipped. And of course, Gnosticism was very likely a, a dominant worldview in Ephesus. That is the worldview that says matter is evil and spirit is good. Demonic activity was something that was very uh, uh, available and prominent in Ephesus. And so you have this worldview hodgepodge in the city of Ephesus. This is where the Christ followers lived and worshipped and influenced their culture for the glory of God. I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes you get in that hodgepodge of worldviews. I hope at least one of you is like me. And you just want to like, like move someplace safe. Right? Like where the Amish are, maybe. Right? Someplace where you're not going to be affected by all these, these, these pagan groups and worldviews. But you know what Jesus says? In John chapter 17, he says, My prayer is not that you take them from the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. That is to say, we're right where we need to be. Randy, you're right where you need to be. Les, you're right where you need to be. Young people in a, in a school that teaches evolution... You're right where you need to be, right? That sounds weird. But you're being equipped at Christ Fellowship and learning a biblical worldview. So you go into the marketplace of ideas and you penetrate that marketplace of ideas with the truth of the gospel and the word of God. So we've seen so far, we've seen the author, we've learned about the recipients. Finally, notice the motivation for writing this letter. Verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I like to call this a celebration of divine favor. A celebration of divine favor. We refer to this as the the celebration of divine favor because Paul uses, and you can see him instantly in verse 2, he uses two very important words. The first word is grace. The word grace, charis. It means kindness or goodwill shown to someone. I've always enjoyed what Wayne Grudem says about grace. He says, God's grace means God's goodness or his love toward those who deserve only punishment. I'm going to try something here. How are you all doing this morning? (laughs) Strike two. How are you all doing this morning? Better than I deserve. Why do we say that? Because we deserve judgment. We deserve wrath. We deserve hell. Now go to verse 2. Paul says, To the undeserving grace to you. Jerry Bridges says grace is God's free and unmerited favor shown to guilty sinners who deserve only judgment. He says it is the love of God shown to the unlovely. It is God reaching downward to people who are in rebellion against him. So think about this. If you when you respond, when I say, how are you doing? And you respond with better than I deserve. If you really believe that. And I hope you do. Go to verse 2. Grace to you. Isn't that something? That's what we receive from the hand of God. But it doesn't end there. Paul also says, peace from God. 
Shalom is the Hebrew word. The Greek word means harmony, tranquility, welfare. It means to be free from worry. One commentator says this, greeting celebrates how the gospel works. Grace comes first, and as it fills our lives through the Holy Spirit, it brings shalom, peace, reconciliation, wholeness. The grace and the peace that Paul celebrates comes directly from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There is power in this little preamble. See, this preamble comes from the pen of an author divinely inspired by God and divinely sent from God. Indeed, this author, Paul the Apostle, has received a divine commission from the very hand of God. This preamble is written to Christ followers in Ephesus, but it is also written to every Christ follower who will ever live. It is written to those who are are faithful in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this preamble is a celebration of divine favor. It is written to bestow grace and peace directly from the hand of God. I believe it is possible as we move into the study of this book that our lives would be impacted in such a way that we will never be the same. For it will change your understanding of God's purposes. It will revolutionize your understanding of God's grace. It will cause you to go deeper into his grace. And if you're here this morning and think, I've kind of reached the pinnacle of the depth, right? Pinnacle of the depth. That doesn't make any sense. I've gone as far as I can go. I've gone as deep as I can go. Mm-mm. Think again, we can go deeper and deeper and deeper. And did you know that when you're dead and gone and when I'm dead and gone, it will still never end. In heaven, we'll go deeper and deeper and deeper into the glory of God unto all eternity. I remember when I was a kid, I thought I'd be bored in heaven. No one will be bored in heaven as we go deeper and deeper into the glory of God. This book will help equip us to be men and women in the generation that God has placed us in. It was an exciting thing for me to sit down for breakfast with the president at Corbin University on Friday morning and to hear him tell the stories of literally dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of students from Indonesia coming to Corbin University and being equipped in the Christian worldview. And I said, Dr. Nord, I have one question for you. Do they go back to Indonesia? And he said, a lot of them go back. And you know what they go back to? They go back to poverty, some of them. Some of them go to the inner city. But wherever they happen to go, whether it's the the slums or the, the riches of the inner city, they go back with the gospel. And what do they go with? They go with the the, uh, attitude of the biblical worldview. And they're going to share the biblical worldview with the nations. And here's the beautiful thing to me. They don't all go back as pastors. They don't all go back as missionaries. You know what they go back as? They go back as school teachers. They go back as business people. They go back as, as physicians. They go back as lawyers. They go back as pharmacists. They go back as people who who work with their hands in a shop. They go back with people who clean things. And what do they do? Wherever they are in their sphere of influence, they 
spread a passion for the supremacy of God, for the joy of all peoples in Indonesia. And you know what's also beautiful about this interaction with my friend? Is the same things happening in Salem. The same things happening in Salem. Young people learn the biblical worldview, not just in theology class, in mathematics, in science, in English, in history, in accounting, in physical education, believe it or not, is the biblical worldview runs through each of these disciplines. And then these students are unleashed into the community to make a difference for the glory of God. It's an unbelievable thing. Let us pray together that Paul's letter to the Ephesians will enrich us and encourage us here at Christ Fellowship, that we would be emboldened to live the Christian life, that we would embolden, be emboldened to live the Christian life for his purposes, for his glory here in Whatcom County, and that, Lord willing, some of you will be sent to the nations. Some of you may go to Indonesia. Some of you may go to China. Some of you may go to Ireland or Scotland or England. Hopefully the last three is me. Because I love those countries. But may God use this little book to, to stir us up and to, to, to bring this passion in our hearts and our minds so that we would reach the nations with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, it's so exciting to move into this power-packed book, and I pray that your spirit would indeed be stirring us up. God, I pray that our, our minds would be engaged, that our hearts would be warmed, that as we walk through verse by verse, that we would see wonderful things in your law, that you would mobilize our hands and our feet, that you would, you would open our ears, you would open our mouths, you would open our eyes so that we would not only see great things in the word of God, but we would be uh, missional in the way that we live the Christian life. God, I pray that you'd use each Christ follower here today for your purposes, extending into the future so that, uh, so that the nations would see the beauty, the absolute beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.